Well, good morning. Uh, before I begin, I wanted to make an announcement, but it's probably as much an apology as an announcement. Uh, last week, I announced that we were going to likely begin the Revelation study next week on the 19th. Uh, I did not look ahead at the calendar to see what came after that and discovered that the first three weeks of February, there are conflicts. So one of the weeks is the baptism, and uh, it's also Super Bowl Sunday. Uh, one of the weeks is um, the night of worship, and then a third week, which is the Valentine's Day weekend, uh, my wife and I are going to be speaking that Sunday night somewhere, or, or that day. Anyway, so... Uh, the Re Revelation study is going to be on February 23rd, so it's like a month away, so sorry about that. And if you know somebody that did not get the message that comes to the Revelation study, please tell them, February 23rd. I do not want them to show up here and think Jesus came back and they were left behind. <laughs> All right. I was raised in a home where uh, the words I love you were not spoken much by my parents. Um, they, they, they just didn't verbally express their love. It was not that I, my parents did not love my three brothers and me. I'm confident that they did. They just didn't, they just didn't verbalize it. It wasn't some, what they really said. Now, I think that changed the first day that I walked out of the house to drive to the college where I was going to be attending. That day, something changed. On that day, my mom said, I love you. I think my dad followed suit. And then after that, I used to hear, I love you a lot more. I'd come back and visit when it was time to leave and go back to the school. My mom would always put on these sunglasses because she'd be crying. And, and then she'd say those words, I love you. And my dad would say, I love you. And, I just remember, though, the first time I heard the words, it was kind of a strange thing. Now, I, I don't blame my parents for that. I don't blame them for not being more verbally expressive about their love because a lot of parents, my parents' age, did the same thing. It, it was kind of what was commonly accepted for that generation. One writer put it this way, the reason why people were not to say they loved or they didn't hug too much was this, coddling by mothers and other family members created clingy, over-dependent youngsters who would grow up to be incompetent adults. In other words, if you said, I love you too much, or if you hug the kids too much, if you're too affectionate with the kids, they'd get soft. That was the prevailing view. It was wrong. Might be a little harsh on this, but I think Dr. Spock, who is viewed as the expert in that generation, was wrong. And I think it hurt a lot, I think it hurt a lot of kids. I think it hurt a lot of families, but that was the, kind of the prevailing idea. You know, just don't spoil the kids with words of affirmation and love and cuddling and all these things. We were created to love and to experience love. Studies have indicated that we not only thrive with love, but survive with love. There's some studies that have indicated that love might actually be as essential as other things, like water and food and things, to our survival. And I think the reason this is the case is because this is the way God is. God is love. Our God doesn't just love. It's not just something He does. It is something He is. 
It emanates out of him. Everything God does is, is loving. It's just the very nature of God. Now, last week, we began a new series titled The More You Know, and it's a story, or a series about getting to know God, what he's like, based on what's taught in the pages of the Bible. And today, I wanna talk about the love of God. But I wanna take it a little different direction than you might think. I could spend some time this morning looking at various verses in the Bible that prove God is love, and I could show the many facets of God's love, how he shows love in this way and he shows love in that way. We could also look at stories, I suppose, where God has demonstrated his love, and you'd, you'd see the story and you'd say, God is love. But I think most of you are aware of the fact that God is love. In fact, if we went outside these doors and we asked the average person, do you think God is love? They, I think most people would say yes. Or if you ask the average person, what is God like? What do you think God is like? One of the first things that I think most people would say, well, God is love. I think that's what most people would think. I don't think we need to be convinced that God is love. What I do think we need to be convinced about is this, God loves me. I think we have trouble believing that God loves us personally as individuals. Now let me ask you for a moment where you're seated there to think about it. Do you believe God loves you? I mean, really. And don't be too quick to answer. A quick answer would be, of course, he loves me. No, think about it for a moment. Do you, do you live in the reality, the awareness, God loves me? Now I think we have a lot easier time believing God loves the person to our left or to our right than he loves us. I'm not gonna ask you to look at those people, but if someone seated to your right or your left asked you, does God love me? You know, I've been struggling to believe God loves me. Most of you would say, well, of course God loves you. I mean, how could God not love you? I mean, I love you. And God loves you, and we would answer really quickly, but then when it comes to, yeah, but does God really love me? I, I think we struggle with that. And the reason we struggle with it, well, I think there are lots of different reasons why we struggle with it. But one of the reasons, I think, is that um, we see the difficulties in our lives and we have trouble believing that if God really loved us, that he would have allowed certain things to happen to us. We look at the difficulties we've faced and we say, if you really loved me, this would not have happened. People have told me that. Uh, lots of people have told me that over the years. I cannot believe that God loves me because of this. And they point to something tragic maybe that happened in their life. And I think that's a lot of people. Other people, I think, struggle with the question of God's love for them because they don't believe that they're forgiven, that they feel guilty, that they have trouble believing that when God looks at them, that God isn't focusing on all the things they've done wrong. How could God love me because I did this? How could God love me because I did this? Or how could God love me because I'm still doing this or that? And we struggle. We don't understand how God's love is really unconditional. And then I think sometimes we struggle to believe God loves us because we feel he's absent. Maybe you prayed to God and you got no response. And, and, and maybe for some time that happened and you just think, well, I just don't, God's not there. I, I don't think it's always easy to believe that God cares about us. Again, I think all of us would say, or most of us would say God loves people. But when it comes to the question, yeah, but does God love me as an individual? 
Some of you might even think, well, God doesn't even notice me. Now, I'm convinced he does. I'm convinced that God's love is absolutely amazing. I believe that God loves everyone. I think God demonstrates his love in countless ways, as I've been thinking just the last year, how God provided for my needs over the past year, physical needs, financial needs, various needs, how God's protected us at different times. I can think of five times where I've, I feel I could have died and I felt like God came in, took care of things. Of course, the greatest way in which God has demonstrated his love is through the forgiveness of our sins, through the sending of his son to be our savior. Paul put it this way in Romans 5.8. He said, but God proves his own love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. If we were ever looking for absolute proof that God loves us, the cost he was willing to pay so that you could become a child of God, so I could become a child of God, demonstrates his amazing love for us. God's love is infinitely greater and deeper and wiser and farther reaching than we have any idea about that we could even imagine or understand. And yet we struggle. I want us to walk away this morning with this idea that we can know that God loves us. And what I mean by this is in our hearts. We can know. We, we can walk, or, I think, or live in the assurance that God really loves us. But are there things that could help? And I believe the answer is yes. As I was exploring the question, how does a person get to a point where they experience God's love? What does is, what is the New Testament or the Bible have to say about how we experientially can get to a point where we know God loves us, where we're walking or living in the reality and the understanding God loves us. And I think there are three main things that I wanna talk about here today. The first one is this, that I think we experience God's love through other people. We experience his love many times through other people, some of the most tangible expressions of love from God are gonna come at the hands of other people. This is part of the reason we emphasize getting involved in community so much, getting in relationships so much because God shows his love through other people. He loves us through tangible hands and feet of other people. But oftentimes we don't recognize that. We wanna experience his love apart from others. You may have heard the story about the guy that was caught in a horrible flood, and it, was, it had been raining for days. His downstairs was completely flooded. It was, the water was rising to his second level, and he had climbed to the roof. And he was praying to God to save him. God, please save me. And while he was praying, a guy came in a rowboat near the house and said, hey, come on, I'll save you, I'll take care of you. And the guy said, no, no, I'm, I prayed about it. I've asked God to save me. I'm fine, I'm fine. And so the guy in the boat went and he kept praying and it kept raining and the rain got higher. And then a speedboat came along. The guy said, jump in, can rescue you. And he said, no, no, I've prayed about it. God's gonna save me. God's gonna take care of me and it's fine. And so the guy left, he realized there's nothing he could do. And now the water had reached almost the very top of the house and the guy was getting a little bit desperate. His faith was waning quite a bit, but he's still praying. 
God saved me, and all of a sudden, a helicopter came over. The door opened from a loudspeaker. I will drop a ladder for you. Climb up. Come to safety. And the guy waved him off. No, no, I'm fine. I've prayed. God's going to rescue me. The water kept rising. The guy got washed away. He died. Found himself in the presence of God. He's a little bit disappointed. He said, God, I prayed to you that you'd save me. And God looked at him kind of perplexed and said, I sent you two boats and a helicopter. You know, like I wasn't recognizing that God might want to deliver him through other people, and that's what God does for us. He shows his love. I promise you that I'm not going to talk about my recent surgery and all the messages from now on, but I did during that time experience an amazing amount of love from people. The expressions of love, the words of love, the way people supported our family during that time, the meals, the weeping with me, the little gifts here and there. I remember the first expression that I felt, I, I was in so much pain and my wife brought in a little stuffed animal that someone had bought for me and it looked like my dog Toby with big eyes. And I grabbed that thing, I looked at it and I was gonna break down crying. It was the first moment of grace, of any kind of expression of grace or love that I'd experienced for two full days. I'd been in constant pain and I, I, I couldn't, honestly, I had trouble picking the thing up because every time I did, I'd look at it and I'd put it down because I'd start crying and then my wife would say, what's wrong, are you? No, I'm fine. <laughs> well, I'm not fine, but I'm fine. It was the love at the hand of other people. This is how our God works. One of Jesus' closest friends was a guy named John. He wrote in 1 John 4, 12, no one has ever seen God. If we love one another, God remains in us and his love is perfected in us. That's our subject here today. How do we get God's love to be really complete in us or perfected in us where we're aware of his love and we're walking in his love? Well, what does it say if we love one another? God remains in us and his love is perfected in us. Now, understand something here about this. In, there's a sense in which God always remains in us. God does not leave you if you're a believer in Christ. That's not what this is talking about. This isn't talking about our positional standing before God. God always will stay with you if you're a Christian. No, it's talking about God abides with you. God enjoys fellowship with us. That's, that God's love is somehow perfected through the love that we have for one another. Now, why did John begin with no one has ever seen God? Besides the fact that it's a true statement, even in the pages of the Bible, God has revealed himself in, in various forms, but he, nobody, nobody ever saw God completely in his glory. Even Moses was not allowed to see the face of God. So why did John throw that in here? Well, I think he's, he's appealing to the fact that we want to see God, but you can't, except you can. That's what he's saying. If you, you experience his love, the fullness of his love, that's how you see God, in, in, and that's the hands of other people. In Ephesians 3, 17 through 19, we find one of Paul's greatest prayers. 
It goes this way, Paul says, I pray that the Messiah or Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith. Again, this is, the word dwell here means to be at home, have fellowship. That he might dwell in your hearts through faith. I pray that you being rooted and firmly established in love because of his dwelling in you may be able to comprehend with all the saints, with all the other believers in Christ. The word saints here is not dead people. It's believers, it's Christians. He says, listen, I want you to have Christ at home in your heart so that you'll be able to understand, which is what we're talking about, understand God's love for us. You might understand with all the other believers. The implication is that we're all together. The breadth, it says, the length, the width, the height, and the depth of God's love. And to know the Messiah's love that surpasses knowledge so you may be filled with all the fullness of God. I'm just convinced it takes place in the context of community. It's the reason we talk about this all the time. And some of us are missing out on this aspect of experiencing God's love. Sure, God will show his love for you when you're alone someplace and just reading your Bible or praying or whatever. But there's a dimension of the breadth, length, height, and depth of his love that I, I think we're missing out on if we're not involved with other believers. That's why we keep beating this drum, get connected with other Christians and experience a new level of not just Christian maturity, but his love for you. But let me make a second point here, a second thing that I think could help us experience his love. I think we experience God's love through his forgiveness of all our sins, or maybe wording it this way, an awareness or the belief that we're forgiven. I've referred to this earlier, that the problem that a lot of us have in believing that God loves us is that our mind immediately goes to the idea, I'm not worthy of his love. I've sinned in all these ways, or maybe just this big way over here, or I'm just not what I should be, and so God, God certainly can't love me, and I think it puts a wedge between us and our ability to experience his love for us. John, again, John, uh, he was the youngest of Jesus' disciples. He was also given a title. The title of John in the, Old, in the New Testament, in the Gospels, was the one Jesus loved. And this is reflected in his Gospels. I mean, his Gospel and then his three books. He talks about love all the time. He wrote something interesting, and it's a little confusing, but let me read it, and then I'll explain it to the best of my understanding. He wrote in 1 John 4, 18, he said, there's no fear in love. Instead, perfect love drives out fear because fear involves punishment. So the one who fears has not reached perfection in love. Now our goal again today is to reach this point of perfection or completion, the ability to experience the love of God. What's he saying here? I think he's saying this, if you are living in the fear of God's punishment of you, either in this life or the one to come. If you're living in the fear of punishment, you will not be complete in love because the fear will kick it out. Perfect love casts out fear. Fear casts out love. We're forgiven of all of our sins, past, present, and future. Jesus has paid the price in full, but we struggle to believe that. You know the reason or the way a person gets right with God is through faith in Jesus Christ. You come to a point where you say, I know I'm a sinner and there's nothing I can do to fix it. I need a deliverer, I need a savior. 
and you believe that God sent his son Jesus to pay the price in full for you on the cross, and so you put your trust in him. You believe that the resurrection proved that God accepted the payment on your behalf. I can't do anything about it. I'm a sinner. I reach out to, to Jesus. He becomes my savior, and I'm forgiven of my sin. And all of your sins and mine were future when Christ died. The deal was done back then. 2,000 years ago, the, the deal was done. All the sins were paid for 2,000 years ago. And we have forgiveness with Christ. You will not be condemned for your sin. Now, some of you are still struggling with it. I don't think it gets any more blatant, though, than this, Romans 8.1 where Paul said, therefore, no condemnation now exists for those who are in Christ Jesus. Doesn't say a little. Doesn't say, well, some in this life, but none in the next. No condemnation now exists for those who are in Christ Jesus. If you've identified with Christ, if you're a Christian, you will not be condemned. And here's why. Jesus was already condemned on your behalf. It would not be just. The payment was already made on the cross. He was condemned. God made him who knew no sin to become sin for you so that you might become the righteousness of God. So you put your trust in Christ and you're born anew. You're adopted into God's family. Your sins are forgiven past, present, and future. Now, I know some of us struggle with that. You wonder, well, won't that cause you to sin more? No, it has the opposite effect. Jesus put it this way, the one who's been forgiven much loves much. When you get to that point where you say, I can't believe you've forgiven me again. You love Christ. That's not the thing that's going to motivate you to sin more. It's going to be the thing that's going to make you love Jesus more and sin less. And when I feel guilty, I, I go to 1 John 1, 9, which many feel, by the way, 1 John 1, 9 is actually a salvation verse. Acknowledging our sin is what brings us into the presence of our Savior. Others think it's something that we have to do more often, but I claim it, or reclaim it, I should say, as a promise, that if we confess our sin, if we've acknowledged our sin, He is faithful and righteous to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. If you acknowledge your sin before Him, before the Savior of the world. It says he's faithful. The word faithful there means you can count on it. He's reliable to do it. You can trust him. The word righteous means it's the right thing to do. It's the just thing to do. It would be unjust not to, not to forgive you. This is an amazing promise. Lord, I, 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 this is me. I've acknowledged my sinfulness. I've turned to Jesus as my Savior. You are faithful and righteous to forgive me of all my sin and to cleanse me then from all unrighteousness, not just what I confessed. Everything else. And so we experience, I think, God's love through his forgiveness of our sin. Perfect love will cast out the fear. And then we're not walking around thinking God hates us. But finally, I have a third point here this morning. We experience God's love as we walk in obedience to Christ. Now, this point I have to admit I hesitated to throw in here, and I'll tell you why. Most of us are stuck on the second point. I think most of us just have trouble believing that we're forgiven completely, that God loves us despite what we've done. We're not walking in the truth of our forgiveness and this third one says, well, really, if you want to experience his love fully, you should walk in obedience to Christ. And immediately you think, yeah, but that's the problem. 
I'm not very good at obeying Christ sometimes, and, and none of us are at times. And we all blow it at times. And as we'll see in a minute, this point really more relates to being connected with Jesus in relationship and then doing what he's leading us to do. That's really what we're talking about here today. But I couldn't ignore this because Jesus talked about it so many times. And specifically, what I'm addressing here today is this. I believe that if there are things that, that Christ has identified in our lives or God has identified in our lives, and we rebelliously say, I don't care, Jesus. That's the thing that I think puts, puts the brakes on there. You say, I will not do what you want me to do, Jesus. Now, if you disagree with me on this, Jesus said there's the, a connection between the two. In John 14, 21 and 23, he said, the one who has my commands and keeps them is the one who loves me. Of course, if you wanna show your love for Jesus, then do what he's asked you to do. That just is a way of showing your love for him. The one who loves or keeps my commands loves me. And the one who loves me will be loved by my father. I will also love him and will reveal myself to him. Verse 23, Jesus answered, if anyone loves me, he will keep my word. My father will love him and we will come to him and make our home with him. Now, again, this isn't about God being conditional in his love for us. God loves us no matter what. I'll demonstrate that at the very end. He loves us regardless of what we do. Nothing can separate you from the love of Christ. That's not what this verse is talking about there. Our subject here today is not whether God loves you positionally, it's whether practically you feel or experience his love. And this is saying, if you love me, you'll keep my word and do what I ask you to do, and then I'll come and I'll make my home with you and you'll... You'll enjoy fellowship with me from which our obedience comes, by the way. This is kind of one of those things where as you walk in Christ, he gives you both the desire to do the right thing and the power to do the right thing. But I'm making the point that when we say no to Christ, it's gonna be hard to experience his love, at least in that area of our lives. John put it this way in John 15, nine and 10. As the Father has loved me, I have also loved you. Remain in my love. It raises the question immediately, how? I want to remain in your love. Verse 10, if you keep my commands, you will remain in my love. Just as I kept my Father's commands and remain in his love. John made a similar point in 1 John 2, 5. Whoever keeps his word, truly in him the love of God is perfected. Is that not our goal? To have the love of God perfected in us? I think it is, whoever keeps his word, and this is how we know we're in him. Now again, I think this is talking about walking in fellowship with Jesus from, from which the obedience springs. But there's a connection here. There's a connection between staying close to Christ and doing what he asks us to do as he leads us and empowers us and saying no to Christ and when we say no to Christ, I think experientially we have trouble believing he loves us. Now, I told you that I, I want to demonstrate that, that God does love you and Jesus does love you no matter what. Romans 8, 35 to 39, it says, who can separate us from the love of Christ? Can affliction or anguish or persecution or famine or nakedness or danger or sword? Skipping to verse 37, no, in all these things we are more than victorious through him who loved us. For I am persuaded that not even death 
or life, angels or rulers, things present or things to come, hostile powers, height or depth or any other created thing will have the power to separate us from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus our Lord. There's nothing, nothing, nothing that can separate you from the love of Christ. There's nothing that can separate you from the love of God through Christ. But we could struggle to believe it. And so I encourage you to look, consider these three aspects, see if these things are not true. One, we experience God's love through other people. My encouragement to you is get connected with other believers and learn to experience that love. Second, we experience it through the forgiveness that we have because perfect love will cast out that fear. And with that one, I'm just saying, claim his promises. What he said is true. If you put your trust in Christ, you're a child of God. You've been given eternal life. You're in God's family. You are forgiven. And finally, we experience God's love as we walk in obedience to Christ. I just encourage you to choose to do what Jesus is leading you to do, to say no to maybe some things, maybe say yes to other things. Now, one last thing I want to mention is some of you maybe have never experienced the love of God because you have not taken the step of putting your trust in Jesus to be your Savior. And for you, that's what I would encourage you to do. It's the reason God sent His Son. It's the reason we celebrate Christmas and Easter. God sent his son into this world to live a sinless life so that he might die in our place and for our sin. He came to fix a problem we couldn't fix. And Jesus took the penalty for everything you and I have done wrong, and he died. But three days later, he rose again, showing that the, the payment had been accepted by God the Father. And we're told that we'll receive this forgiveness and become children of God when we put our trust firmly in Jesus to be our Savior. For God so loved the world, he gave his only son. Whoever believes in him will have eternal life. Whoever puts their trust in him. And so if you've never done that, most do it through a prayer. Simply along the lines of, God, I, I know I've, I've sinned. I, I've blown it. I can't fix it. I need a savior. I believe today. I want to put my trust in Jesus. I want his death and resurrection to count for me. I'm trusting in him alone for my eternal destiny. And he promises to forgive us. Let's pray. Father, thank you for your amazing love for us. I ask you as we go forward from this place that you give us the grace to understand it more and more, to believe it more and more, to claim it, to, to see it. Your love is so amazing toward us and it's so rich toward us and yet I think we miss out for various reasons. But we want to experience your love toward us. We thank you that you're, you, you want to abide with us that you want your love to be made complete in us. We're grateful for that, and thank you in Jesus' name, amen.